I'm Wayne Rubin, and I want to welcome you to the podcast, Hard Yards in Leadership, where we explore the tough leadership challenges experienced by successful leaders along their journey. I hope hearing their stories will help you predict, prepare, and survive the inevitable challenges you will face on your leadership journey. Let's get into it. Hey there, everyone. I'm Wayne Rubin, and welcome to today's episode of Hard Yards in Leadership. Boy, have we got a guest for you today. Today's guest, uh, her name is Tamara Davis. Tamara is probably Australia's most preeminent astrophysicist. Now, we haven't had many astrophysicists on Hard Yards in Leadership before, and it's an extraordinary privilege for me to have Tamara as, as a guest. She is a Sydney girl, born and bred, and grew up, went to university. She tells the story of how she was a shy little kid little reveal. I knew her as a kid. Our families have, have been friends forever. So this shy little kid turned out to be quite bright, turned out to have an interest in a pursuit of something as complex as an astrophysicist. And she tells the story of the many hard yards of gaining her qualifications and building status and recognition at those levels. We learn about how she developed leadership skills predominantly through sport, which of course we often hear. She'll share about an extraordinary, massive research piece that she literally just launched this week, where she was coordinating no less than 156 authors and they were looking at essentially a dark energy progression and the scope of the paper that has just been launched literally poses the question, have we been understanding gravity wrong for all of these years? So when you think about people who push the boundaries of human knowledge, we're literally in, in that space today. Along the way, you're going to see Tamara is such an easygoing, articulate, thoughtful, joyful uh, character. She shares her hard yards and her achievements with ease. She has wonderful reflections on things that have helped her along the way. I think you are going to absolutely love listening to and learning from and being inspired by Tamara Davis. So without any further ado, let's get on with the show. Well, welcome, Tamara Davis. It's so good to have you on the show. I'm so excited to talk to you today. I'm so excited to be here. Yay. Can we start, Tam, by just asking, can I ask you to share, I guess, a snapshot of what you do these days? Because I think it's going to blow some people's minds, but we'll also give a platform from which we can kind of do some exploring over the next 40 minutes or so. Awesome. Yeah. So I'm an astrophysicist. I work at the University of Queensland and I do research into cosmology. I try and understand the expansion of the universe as a whole, test the laws of gravity, and in particular, try and figure out what it is that's causing the expansion of the universe to speed up. We've discovered for some reason that gravity seems to be working in reverse. It's pushing instead of pulling on the biggest scales in the universe. We don't know why. Whatever's causing it, we give it the name dark energy, and I try and figure out what dark energy is. So let, let me just pause for a moment and say, oh, my God, you are, <laughs> you are the first astrophysicist on Hard Yards in Leadership, <laughs> and the material that you work in I think is literally just off the scale. So I can't wait to dive into some of your stories and share with listeners 
some of your hard yards and also some of some of your achievements because I know there's plenty of both of those. <laughs> yes, indeed. So, Tam, tell me, we talk about this concept of leadership and I know that leadership is an important part of what you do today and you certainly wouldn't be able to rally groups of over 150 authors toward producing sort of these mega papers and so on that, that I know that you have been able to do. You wouldn't be able to do that without an absolute healthy dose of not just leadership but effective leadership. How did you learn to be a leader? Yeah, so it's uh, an interesting thing that just came by through osmosis, like yeah, through just like learning it by doing a variety of different things. I was always a super shy kid, I never really pictured myself as a leader. I would just step in and do things when other people didn't know how to do them. And that, that was like, I'm happy to sit back and relax and, and let other people take the leadership until I see something where, that really needs to be done. Nobody's doing it and I step up and do that. And that's been sort of my uh, mode of operation for my entire life. So as you mentioned, I'm now leading teams of hundreds of people around the world, big international collaborations. And to step from being the super shy kid who didn't want to do anything to that point was a really big jump, but it all happened in tiny little incremental steps. Uh, And I think one of the things that I didn't realize at the time, but was teaching me a huge amount was while I was at university, I joined all the clubs and did a whole bunch of different things outside of the classroom, in particular playing sport and through leading teams in sport and leading like the club that I, I played this obscure sport called Ultimate Frisbee and I was president of the Ultimate Frisbee Club and Uh, through captaining teams and leading those type of things, I managed to build up a lot of the skills that have served me really well in my professional life. And so let's break a few bits of that down because there's leadership, which is one piece of the puzzle, but there's also overcoming shyness. And little secret reveal to, to the audience, Tamara and I have known each other for pretty much most of our lives. And yes, you were a really shy kid. And yet today, you know, not are you one of Australia's, if not the world's leading scientists, but you present papers in front of extraordinary like groups of not just a lot of people, but a lot of really smart people and a lot of really important people. And you look like you're doing it with about as much stress as, as opening a packet of biscuits. How did you kind of take that shy kid and help them reach that level of proficiency in what for so many people say is one of the one of the most difficult skills of all yeah it is uh, a com- complete surprise to me as well if any of my high school teachers and stuff saw the fact that i was out in front of hundreds of people giving public talks showing up on uh, like i've done some shows on television and all of these kind of things they would just they would laugh they're like how on earth did that happen? And so the way it just happened a little tiny step by step. It, it was never one big thing where I suddenly learned how to do it. It was just forcing myself into my uh, uncomfort zone repeatedly. So the first kind of things that I did was while I was doing my um, PhD in astrophysics or even in undergrad, I got invited to give some talks at amateur astronomy societies. So I would give talks about my research to all of these people who were really excited about astronomy. So it was a very welcoming audience who got really excited. And that gave me a little bit of confidence that what I was saying was interesting to people. And then as I grew, grew in confidence of that, and did, uh, I gave talks to schools and then I gave talks to more professional things and at conferences. And it just sort of built up over time, repeatedly putting myself out there and giving little talks and things that I finally gained the confidence that then now I can show up confidently and speak to 
huge groups of people. And in parallel with that, I was also doing that other leadership that I was talking about with sport. So I think one of the nervous, most nervous things I had to do was I was running a league, like a little tiny league for Frisbee where all the teams would come in. At the beginning of each evening, I would have to call everybody together and say, this is what we're doing. This team's playing that team and you're over there and whatever. And I just have to like randomly speak to all of these people that I didn't know and do that week after week. And that also just sort of broke the ice enough to get me a little bit of confidence in speaking in front of people and also just doing that that leadership and i think it was somewhere along those lines that i realized that a lot of leadership is just telling people where and when to show up and <laughs> making a decision so that things happen and yeah so that was that that was sort of the parts that kicked it off it's really interesting to hear tamara and I'm going to keep those two trains going going for a moment because it, um, when we think about the ability to kind of speak to people in in large groups, you know, this thing we call public speaking, right? I actually think as leaders, not just in business but in any format of organisation, the ability to communicate effectively in a one-to-many space is it's so critical a concept of leadership is is you bring people with you, you create fellowship. And to be able to do that, you have to communicate in such a way that you engage people and you bring them with you. And and one of the things I've noticed, you know, I've, I've seen a number of speeches that, that you've given and you have an extraordinary ability as well as now being a very comfortable person in front of a room of people. Your topic is probably one of, if not the most complex topic any, anyone is ever going to hear a talk on. And you have an extraordinary ability to make really complex things be graspable, at least at a very basic level. And the way you present your story, ultimately, you have a gift of making that interesting. And I'm kind of, I'm fascinated in how you develop that art because in, in the world of business, at one level, the fact that you're an important person talking to a lot of people means that people are going to come because they kind of have to. But if you don't make it interesting and you can't break complex things down and make them simple, everyone hears your words, but they don't do anything about it. So again, you don't create fellowship. How did you learn to do those two things, make it interesting and make it simple? when your subject matter is so complex. Absolutely. Talking about the the expansion of the universe and the laws of gravity and stuff is usually not the most trivial thing to get people to understand. But, I mean, for in my subject, there are so many exciting things that are just like, wow, what the, what are you talking about? That's like uh, the fact that we're seeing galaxies from that emitted the light that we're now seeing before the Earth even formed. The fact that these exploding stars formed the, the elements that make up our bodies now and we're watching them and understanding how they work and understanding sort of the genesis of where Earth actually came from. All of those things are, are great. But to answer your, your question, the key to really effective communication is, in my mind, is not thinking about what you want to tell the audience but thinking about what they want to hear. So it's from really thinking from the perspective of what do they already know and how can you increment that knowledge somewhat? You can't bridge that gap by saying, what do I know and what do I want to tell them? It's like, what do they know and what would interest them? Like what actually does interest them about this topic? They don't care that I spent most of my time doing systematic errors and debugging code and doing all of this boring background stuff. They care about the big picture, exciting aspects of it. 
um, and also that's the bits that that you have a hope to understand. So I think it's really putting yourself in the mind of the audience, whether it's your workmates when you're working with a, a collaboration or public when you're talking to them. It's just really important to think of it from their perspective. And I think in terms of leadership, that's ultra important as well. When you're trying to motivate a team, uh, the motivation doesn't come from what do I need done? It comes from what is that person going to find inspiring to do? Like what gets them up in the morning? What makes them excited to come to work? And what's going to be good for their career, not what's going to benefit my career or my project? And ideally you figure out what, if you can get all of those things to align so that the aspects of the, the person's career, their interests, their skills all align with something that needs doing for your project, perfect, then that, that's going to work. But if you approach it from their perspective, not yours, uh, it all works much more smoothly. Right. Fantastic messages. And the, as I said, the proof of the puddings and the eating, if that's how you think about it and that's what you achieve, then it obviously, it obviously works. It makes complete sense to me. Tam, I'm, I'm keen to explore parts of your career growth. So you go along to university, you decide you're kind of going to learn about this astrophysics and, 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 and stuff. And you, you probably have a lot of hard yards sitting behind screens and, and books and whatever else. You start to get out in the world. You're starting to kind of like build your presence, whatever it might be. How easy is it in those mid-years when you're kind of, you know, you're not a fresh young grad anymore, but you're not at the level you're at now and you're trying to kind of get into projects and become known and work with the people you want to work with, does that all happen easy or do you, do you have to work hard to make that happen? Yeah, it's not trivial. And I think some of the one of the really important aspects becomes being comfortable with uncertainty in some ways. So for me, I, I remember a, a specific moment when I was talking to my PhD supervisor and I'm like, look, I can't figure out this problem. And, I, I, and he's like, now, you know, go away, figure out this problem. I've, I've come back after trying for a few weeks. I'm like, look, I just, I can't figure out where to go. Can you tell me what the answer is? Like, can you tell me where to look yet? And he was like, no. And I was like, what do you mean? No. And he's like, uh, like, I, like, you're being really mean. Can't you help me out here? And he's like, no, no, I can't help you out because no one knows how to do this. Like, it's never been done before. That's why it's research. That's why it's your job. Like there's no answer in the back of the book here. You have to figure this out yourself. And that was a massive moment in my mind where I went from the person who'd been studying stuff that people know to the person who had to create new things. And I've seen a lot of students over the years really struggle with that transition. Star students who've been fantastic at, you know, delivering exactly what the teacher wanted them to do, then when they have to generate their own ideas and their their own solutions, that is a really difficult step sometimes. And I remember also just having that idea when I was finishing my PhD, sort of that obligation. I was like, oh my gosh, I need to actually figure out projects, original projects to do myself. Like I I'm, have to be the person who's not figuring out how to answer a question, but figuring out what the important questions are. What are the priorities? What do we need to do in this field and how do we progress? And that's what a leader does in any field, right? You, you figure out what is the priorities that I need most addressing right now, what's achievable. And that, that's actually the fine balance. Like it also, it would be great to do this spectacular big change that will, you know, transform the whole field. But is that achievable? What like finding that balance between something that's going to be impactful and something that you can actually do in a reasonable amount of time with the resources that you have and figuring that out. And I remember that being challenging. 
And initially I was very intimidated by that. I didn't know how I was going to get there. But then after a few years just working in the field with some good mentors, all of a sudden I was coming up with ideas and I was like, we need to do this. And I, I think this would be great. And then, and, and, oh, and I now know these people who can do this with me and we'll get it, we'll get it done and contacting them and saying, I think we need, we need to do this. And so it sort of ended up being a natural transition where at some point I turned around and looked backwards and I was like, oh, yeah, I, I know how to come up with projects now. And I, I think can figure that out, uh, which was a step that I had doubted myself that I was ever going to be able to do. The other thing that's sort of, uh, interesting as well in the field that I am is it that uh, and I think in lots of high flying fields like the group that I was working with was in some ways very intimidating. We didn't know it at the time, but when I first finished my PhD, the first postdoc that I went and did, I was working directly with someone who would go on later to win the Nobel Prize, and I was working ended up working with the three Nobel Prize winners that won in 2011. And so this was before they won the Nobel Prize, but they were already clearly very impressive characters. And that whole group, I mean, you're working with everybody that has a PhD in astrophysics. So you're working with a bunch of really inspired, interesting people. And that doubt that you have about how am I going to have a influence in this group where everybody is so impressive. And for that, I found, again, I just, I was in this big project and I just saw this little tiny aspect of it that clearly needed doing that no one else was doing yet. And I just asked the leadership, would you like me to have a go at this? It looks like it needs doing. It was figuring out some filters to design for a space telescope. And they were like, oh, if you think you can do that, great, yeah, jump on. So I did that. I spent a month, gave back a report, and they were super impressed with that. And that actually, that taking that initiative is what ended up, and, and there was a bit of a selfless thing. It wasn't a very really fancy thing. It just needed to be done. And doing that sort of selfless part of a big collaboration work is what helped me later get into a leadership role with these same people. Like sort of 10 years later, came back to a different project and they were they were like, oh yeah, we remember you. You did that good stuff. Come and, come and join us. There's a lot of talk these days about this concept of imposter syndrome, which is kind of like you, know, you walk into a room with all of these clever people and, and go, I'm nowhere near good enough. I, I shouldn't be here. And literally I hear of people turning around and walking back out again. Is that something you've ever, ever really grappled with? Is that, has that been a weight on your shoulders? Yeah, it has been quite often like and i think the higher you get up in an organization the more imposter syndrome you get in many ways because it's funny like you in the field that i'm in it's very competitive about three percent of the people that get phds in astrophysics will end up getting a permanent job in like becoming a professor so a three percent rate for people who already have a phd in astrophysics is pretty low so it's extremely competitive to get there that's not a great hit rate (laughs) yeah you know if you if if one professor is likely to graduate 20, 30 PhD students during their career. That's just the, you know, you only get one replacement who's going to replace the professor in that time. So you have to acknowledge that in my field that you're incredibly lucky if you've made it. Those people who are really, really egotistical and think, oh, I made it here all by myself and, you know, I was always going to make it, are, I think, deluding themselves because there is so much luck involved one way or the other. And Certainly imposter syndrome's there. Like, why did I survive when so many other people who worked just as hard, who were just as clever, didn't get there? And so I've always, for my entire career, just been felt enormously lucky that I am where I am. And I think my imposter syndrome just turned into the fact that I just I appreciate the fact that I have been lucky there and that I make the most of that and give back as much as I can thanks to the good fortune I've had in my career. Nice. So, Tim, in recent weeks and days 
you've had the extraordinary um, privilege of launching, I guess, uh, or revealing some research that has has taken some significant making happen, right? So do you want to give the listeners a bit of a snapshot of of that? And there's a whole bunch of questions I'm keen to ask <laughs> about that that process. But um, what have you just revealed to the world? Yes, it's very sure. This week has been an incredibly exciting week for me. So literally yesterday, we made public the results from our supernova cosmology project with the dark energy survey now that's a survey uh using a big telescope in chile that i started in on in 2012 and it actually had been already been running for almost a decade before that and so the people had come together saying we want to make the biggest best survey of the sky that's ever been done to do so they worked and they designed the the like the camera chips, the like digital camera that was going to be used. They worked with like the people who um, make those from scratch and did new research into making new silicon chip type stuff so that you could do the, the better cameras, built the instrument, put it on the telescope. And that's when I joined in 2012. Then we did from 2012 to 2019, we did this observing uh, and we observed on this telescope in Chile and a, a, a partner telescope here in Australia. And we observed for six or seven years. And then we spent the last few years analyzing the results that we got. And literally yesterday, we finally released the results to the world. And what we did, so it's a massive deal for me. Like it's basically a decade of my career. So it's, I'm super excited. And what we did was we found the biggest, best sample of uh, exploding stars that had ever been made. So the people I mentioned before who won the Nobel Prize, there was two different teams and they discovered that the expansion of the universe is speeding up. It's accelerating. They discovered this dark energy stuff. And with that, one team had 10 supernovae and one team had 42, but they only had a little bit of data on each. We now have better data than that on over 1,600 supernovae and most of those emitted the light that we're seeing before the Earth even formed. So they're so far away that the light's been traveling. And while the light has been traveling, you know, this gas cloud over here coalesced, formed our sun, planets formed around that, you know, little beings crawled out of oceans or however this happened and, and then learned to build telescopes, turned those telescopes around, looked at the sky and saw these exploding stars, the light from these exploding stars that had been traveling that entire time. And, yeah, so the sample that we've just released is 80% of all known high redshift supernovae, so all known distant supernovae. So we've just made a ginormous difference on how many of these things that we've been able to see, which means we've been able to measure with more precision than ever before the acceleration of the expansion, and in particular how that's changing with time. And if we've actually – because the standard model is that there's something out there that is causing gravity to push, not pull – and the standard model is that that's just like something that's constant. But we saw maybe tantalizing hints that it actually changes with time, uh, which would be a big deal for fundamental physics because we're still trying to explain this from the fundamental physics point of view. Do we have our law of gravity wrong? Is there some material out there that has some anti-gravity properties that we don't know about? What is causing this weird, weird behavior and can we harness it? Yeah, so that's my excitement of the last couple of days. <laughs> well, last decade. How many authors have collaborated to produce this piece of work? 
So to do this, we had all of the people who designed that instrument that I was talking about, all the people that did the observing over the better part of, you know, more than half a decade, all the people that did the analysis are all on this paper. We ended up having 156 authors, but there there would have been more than, than that even that contributed over the years that just haven't been active lately. It's the kind of project that literally you have some posthumous authors on there that people did not survive to see the, the final outcome of work that they spent decades you know, doing. And so that was one of the things. I was coordinating this, fin- this final paper with these supernova results and just coordinating all of the authors and getting everybody to agree on what we were writing and saying and getting everybody to do their little bit of the analysis because everyone has some different specialty. They might have been the instrument person. They might have been the observer. They might have been the theorist. They might, might be the ones that measure how bright supernovae are. They might be the ones that use the, use the machine learning to classify them into different types of supernovae. Everybody has their own specialty and bringing all those threads together, getting everyone to work towards the same goal is definitely a juggling act. So (laughs) my mind is in overdrive just trying to imagine that amount of coordination. Are there any particular hard yards of all of that that are worth sharing? Well, uh, there was, for us, there's a delicate balance sometimes, uh, particularly because we have a lot of PhD students working with us between the giving the PhD students time to do the analysis they need, which could potentially be done faster by a more senior postdoc like type of person, and finding the bottlenecks. That was the uh, biggest challenge because when with such a multifaceted uh, project, when you have such specialized people, there's very few people who can do like a particular part of the analysis. So avoiding bottlenecks and making it happen in a timely fashion is the thing that we probably could have done a lot better. That was the hardest thing to manage. This also harks back to some of that thing where I was, the leadership that I learned from playing sport. When you're working with a team, and really is it probably about of that team towards the end, there's about 30 core people that were doing most of the analysis. And it's all about you know juggling people's egos, figuring out what they want to do, like what is advancing their career, making sure that the thing that they're doing is not just grunt work in the background that isn't helping them, like finding something that is actually inspiring to them, giving them a motivation. So like getting getting them, you can write a paper on this if this comes out and that kind of thing, concentrating on what motivates people. And then also having some really clear guidelines for what credit is going to be given to people. So when it comes to authorship for a paper like this, there's often arguments about who will be first author, like who's going to be given more credit on the paper. And so the way we organize that here is we give no one specific credit. It's a completely alphabetical order authorship list because it's too difficult to say one person's more important than the other. And we have individual separate papers that do little background supporting papers on little aspects of the analysis where an individual can lead that and they get specific credit for the part that they did. But this big paper with the results was just alphabetical. And we have we wrote down right at the beginning what the rules were going to be for authorship of papers and credit and all of that sort of stuff. So that was clear that people knew what they were getting into from the beginning. Hey, folks, a brief interruption to the episode. So, look, if you listen to my podcast, I'd be pretty confident you're wanting to be the best leader you can be. And likely you're also like me, committed to the pursuit of high performance. But... 
in my experience, there just aren't that many opportunities for business leaders to really learn from and engage with proven high performers. Moreover, I've come to learn that many of the best learns about high performance come from disciplines outside the business world, like elite sport and military. And of course, for most of us, it's just not that easy to interact with people from these worlds, especially at an up-close and personal level. So I made a decision to change that. So with some awesome colleagues, I crafted the ultimate High Performance Leadership Summit, an opportunity for leaders to interact with the best of the best across multiple disciplines. We've got Sammy Kennedy Sim, arguably Australia's most enduring high-performance Winter Olympian, and she was the flag bearer at the last Winter Olympics. We've got Dave Ballard, who's the head of high performance at the powerhouse Brisbane Broncos NRL team. Then there's Cliff Morgan, ex-Royal Australian Air Force, with over 15 years combining active military service and military leadership training. And then Cliff and the unstoppable Ali Flynn bring the mindset understanding of organisational psychology. And then, of course, yours truly and Pearl Lim, we bring it all together with our long history of delivering high performance in the world of multinational business, where you probably come from. The Ultimate High Performance Leadership Summit takes place March 8 to 10 in Sydney, Brisbane in Australia, and it's restricted to just 25 participants. If you want to be part of this exceptional experience, click the link in the show notes for more info or message me via LinkedIn. Happy to have a chat. Now, let's get back to the episode. It's always fascinating for me, Tam. You know, I come from the world of, of big business and you come the, from the world of, of mega science. And so many of the things come down to simple human nature and the issues tend to be all the same. The juggling of egos and um, finding ways to minimize people having their egos dented to the point that they don't want to do it anymore. You know, we spend a tremendous amount of our time in, in, in corporations dealing with those sorts of things. And, you know, one of the things that you just mentioned, which is just make the rules of the game very clear from the very beginning. So it's like, you know what you've signed up to. It, often we just come back to if we could just get that right, we'd solve so many of the other problems. So it's it's always fascinating to me when you sort of explore how things work in totally different disciplines and you kind of go, it all just comes down to human nature really, doesn't it? Absolutely. It's all just humans and everyone is going to have their different strengths and weaknesses. And as a leader, your job is to figure out what those are and play to everybody's strengths and help them build on their weaknesses if they need to and attack that in a really compassionate way and really a, a focus on benefiting the each worker, each person, each contributor to the whole project, and then that benefits the whole eventually. I wanted to dive into a separate space now, and that's so there's a concept that Adam Grant actually kind of spends a lot of time talking about, which is unlearning. Mm-hmm. So we recognise that certainly in the world of business these days as things are, particularly in this post-COVID era, things are changing at such an accelerated rate. Consumer behaviour and consumer expectations changing and, and the way workers work and what their expectations are. There's two supernovas in the in the corporate world that are that are spinning very, very fast. And if we don't have fantastic learning agility, you know, we find ourselves completely unable to deal with the reality of what we're facing. And learning to have learning agility, you have to have really quite a developed ability to unlearn. When you're doing what you do, which takes you to the point of perhaps, you know, you said earlier in this podcast, you know, one of the things we have to stare down at the moment is perhaps we, we're actually, we've been teaching the, the law of gravity wrong. You know, maybe it's not, 
maybe it doesn't quite work like that. I'm curious, as you deal with the sort of people in your circles, as you start to get to these points where it's like, oh my gosh, maybe the world's actually not flat, how many people embrace the new things? How many people push back that one part? And when you start to have different theories of how it might really work, and I would imagine at times there will be multiple different theories, how does that all resolve? Because you know, hopefully it doesn't finish up with everyone just in, in fisticuffs in the middle of the meeting room. <laughs> I've only seen potential fisticuffs at one conference. <laughs> but that was when two people who had who had different theories, they both agreed on the basics but then were disagreeing about specifics. But anyway, it's very rare to see that. There is a perception, I think, from some people outside of science, particularly people who are who are like approaching scientists were saying, oh, I have an idea of how gravity works, how, how this works. And if you if you don't agree with them, they're like, oh, you guys are just like, you know, trying to maintain the status quo. You have a lot of invested in like the theories that you're all doing at the moment and you don't want to change. And I would contradict that very strongly because literally every research scientist is trying to break the status quo. Everybody in the field wants to be, you know, the next Einstein, the next person who shows, figures out what the next theory is that improves on the ones that we have. And when we do those improvements, it doesn't necessarily mean that the previous one was wrong. It's just probably incomplete in some way. Like Newton's theory of gravity wasn't wrong. It still works great when you want to build bridges and buildings and figure out how a ball flies through the air. It just doesn't work when you're moving close to the speed of light or near a black hole or near something like really strong gravity. So we're just trying to improve constantly on the the theories that we have. And sometimes, sure, we do need to knock down the previous theories um, completely because they were completely wrong. But that's sort of the aim of science is to, to really innovate. So you find that you're with a lot of people who want to see change. However, at the same time, you're with a lot of people who require really strong evidence where the, the theories that we do have are extremely well supported by many, many years, centuries even, of evidence of people testing them and showing in what ways they do work. And now some of the theories have some limitations in that they don't explain everything. Like we, this dark energy is something that we that wouldn't have been in the, the basic theory. So we know that we ha- don't have the complete theories, but we can't just throw everything out and try something completely new. So it's the, this really interesting balance between being innovative but being rigorous and really applying the scientific method carefully and really testing new proposals. That makes so much sense. So when we do have people with multiple theories, that that does actually come in where the key, when you have a, a new theory, is to figure out how to test it. And that's actually one of the niches that I like sitting in. So I don't typically come up with new theories myself, but I take all of these variety of theories that people have done for what dark energy is and figure out how to test them, which is not always obvious because, like, you know, figuring out how bright supernovae are at this particular speed and stuff is not something that comes out from saying gravity works in this exact way. Like you have to do some calculations to go from one to the other. And so interpreting the theories in terms of something we can observe is a really important niche and it's where I really enjoy playing. Sounds absolutely fascinating. Tam, I'm interested to just talk about your career from a different perspective. This is another kind of hard yard space, but but coming out from a bit of a different angle. You've been, as I see it, at, at the top of your game now for, for quite a long time, right? And I sense that you have a tremendous amount of joy and excitement from 
much of what you do. But most of us, even if we love what we do, most most of us who seek to kind of be you know a high performer over over a longer period of time, other life things happen, and between you know aeroplanes and jet lags and all of those sorts of things, and and you know I know a few years we've we've literally done flight comparisons, and you're the only person I've ever met who who sometimes used to beat me, for better or for worse. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so. I guess what I'm just keen to understand is what's your resilience story? Like, do you sometimes find yourself just kind of going flat on it all and, and just struggling or, or are, you, are you actually one of those miracle people who just is always at the top of your game? I don't think those miracle people exist. I think that they, if they're, they're projecting an image that, that may not be true if they're claiming to exist. I definitely have that, that cycle of being super inspired and able to do lots of stuff and then the, the, the time where I'm like exhausted and not and just drained and just not as I just can't face getting up and doing another thing and, and it definitely goes in waves. And I find that when I'm in one of those low spots and I'm just like, look, I can't just can't seem to get any stuff done today or can't get the important stuff done today I just have to be really forgiving of myself and I have that phrase in my mind be forgiving of yourself like today you've done what you could maybe that was dealing with some boring emails instead of the important thing I needed to do but but you know being forgiving of yourself is super important in those situations and one of my resilience strategies for sure is having multiple things on the go all the time so I've got my work stuff, but I also have my personal life stuff. And some of that I keep returning to the idea of playing sport or having like groups of friends you go on hikes with and things. So if you have multiple facets to your life, so I play, I play this ultimate Frisbee thing. I've started to do, do a couple of little triathlons and rowing and things like that. And so they distract you from the work stuff. And it's rare to find that the, that, Everything is going badly at the same time. You know, you might have take some hits at work or something where something isn't like someone's criticized something or it's, you know, you're having some interpersonal issues at, with people at work or something like that is going like, oh, it's just all go all going crap and you're feeling really bad about that. But it's rare that that happens at the same time as your sport thing is going crap or the other thing. So having the multiple facets to your life so that when one is really low, the other can buoy you up is one of the ways that I try and stay resilient. Yeah, it's great to hear. Um, and it's interesting, I did, I did some work earlier in my career with a sports psychologist, very prominent guy who did a lot of research in, into particularly working with elite athletes and, and one of the, the strongest things that came out from that was how important it is to have a, a sense of self that is not just all about one thing. You know, so if you're nothing but a 100-metre freestyle swimmer and you, you swim a bad 100-metre freestyle, your sense is, I'm a failure. If you swim different things and you do different things out of the pool and you have other interests totally aside from sport, when one part falls over, your self-image doesn't just collapse in a hole. You can manage your sense of self by going, look, that's not working so well at the moment, but you know that's going well and I'm really happy for this and I'm grateful for that and whatever else. And that's exactly what you just described. And I think you know, for listeners, you know, one of the things that we get a lot from listeners who, who listen to Hard Yards is you know reflections on these sorts of things and so you know thanks for sharing that because i think you know sometimes people see people who have achieved at, at really quite extraordinary levels like yourself and and assume that it is 100% of everything that you do because how could you possibly achieve if if it wasn't but in fact it's not and you don't want it to be right absolutely and i do a lot of mentoring for for younger students and things and that 
I often hear people saying, oh, I'm, I've quit all of my sport or I've stopped playing music or I'm not doing drama club anymore because I need to focus on my PhD this year. And I'm like, nope, absolutely not. Bad plan. Go back, do those other things because you won't be able to concentrate. You can't concentrate, you know, 16 hours a day on this. Like, There's plenty of time in your day to go and do these other things and they're really important to continue doing so that you stay enough, well enough balanced that you can be effective during the times that you do your effective work during the day. Yeah, I think that's super important. Yeah. And I also think when what you do, when your primary occupation or career is very heavily reliant on your ability to use your brain to comprehend complex things, and I used to think I did that in the world of business when I look at what you, what you do, <laughs> feel powered by comparison, but same type of thing. I think having that time away from the desk, you know, I used to do a lot of running and whatever else, and I can absolutely say the vast majority of good ideas I ever had or deeper understandings I had of a complexity of a problem came to me when I was away from staring at it. Mm -hmm. You know, in fact, I, I came to learn that as soon as you stare at it for long enough to have essentially got its scope then get away from it and let your let your brain work in the background and 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 I've I found that powerful. Have you seen that too? Yep, one hundred percent. I remember staring at this one piece of code that I was trying to debug for three days and I just couldn't get it and I gave up and I actually printed out my code on paper and I went to a cafe and I sat down and within about two minutes of sitting at the cafe and having the code on a piece of paper, I noticed that I had a minus sign wrong and I was like, that was the whole problem and I was like, ah. Oh. But just jolting yourself, I, I mean, that happens so many times, jolting yourself out of where you were, giving your brain just that little bit of time to zen itself and then figure out things from there definitely helps me too. Fantastic. On Hard Yards and Leadership, we have a, a bit of a standard kind of like path to close and and I always like to ask my guests this, this little sort of scenario-based question. You may have already answered it. Let's see. So notionally you're sitting at your desk you look up there's a wall or something that you look and see a lot because that's where you work i now give you a conceptual tin of paint and a paintbrush and you get to paint some words on the wall that you're gonna see every time you look up what do you paint on the wall oh that's a hard one i need prep for this hmm. fun forgiveness and innovation is a boring like sort of technical or like catchphrase type of word, but something about imagination, maybe just imagination. Nice. Fun forgiveness and imagination. Mm -hmm. I love it. I think, again, a lot of people knowing what you do and your qualifications and everything else would think you're going to write some very, very different things, but fun forgiveness and imagination, I think, captures a spirit that actually that's what allows you to do all of these things and perform at the level that you do. And, and I think that's a great inspiration also for a lot of other people who sometimes think to perform at super high levels in super intellectual spaces, you have to act like you're super intellectual <laughs> and um, you have to have the capability, but just finding the fun in it all and, and finding forgiveness as well, not just for yourself, but for the people around you mm -hmm. are extraordinary human qualities. Tamara, this has just been such a joy for me. I, you know, I'm so looking forward to having this interview. Our stars aligned a little bit because you know we got to speak, you know, just after your your huge announcement, which is kind of special and massive. Congratulations for that, by the way. 
I'm sure that every single person who listens to this is going to get a tremendous amount from it. I thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute delight. Thank you, Tamara. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to another incredible episode where successful leaders share their hardest yards. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to let people know by sharing the episode around and rating and reviewing the podcast on the platform you listen on. Feel free to join our online community on LinkedIn. You can find the link in our show notes. I look forward to seeing you next week. Meanwhile, keep learning, find the joy in what you do, and keep believing in yourself as a leader.